Hello and welcome to the second part of our Alphabet Extravaganza episodes that I uh, recorded with Ollie earlier this month. Uh, we're still in the process of setting up the new consistently eccentric HQ in our new house and we hope to have some more episodes of a more traditional format coming your way in the near future. Hope you enjoy uh, the other 12 stories and have a good one. Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote and this is Consistently Eccentric a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser-known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with... Do you want to come back up to the present day? Yes. Should we talk about someone who, at the turn of the century, a bit like our Mr Sid, the bus pass bandit, got to an old age before she decided she wanted something from the system? Yeah. Okay, then please meet Bunty McSkimmy, who's representing the M's for us. Where is this person from? Uh, she's a former Sunday school teacher from Glasgow. Bunty? Bunty McSkimmy. I love it. At the age, the ripe old age of 76, because her cooker was on its last legs, yeah. she offered to become the secretary of the Glasgow Tree Lovers Society. Okay, love it. Now, despite the fact that she um, had a habit of smoking cigars... Okay. Uh, and that she was quite a, a gregarious, sweary kind of woman. Yeah. They decided that they'd put her in charge of the funds uh, that the Glasgow Tree Lover Society had painstakingly pulled together with minimal oversight. Yeah. So she had a book. <laughs> she was given a book full of blank checks and wide powers over all the assets that this society had managed to, to get over the years. Which included, considering this is a tree lovers society, I mean, I think this was a money laundering thing because they had stocks and shares valued at eighty thousand pounds and over twenty seven thousand in a current account with the Royal Bank of Scotland. Okay, well, that's a substantial amount. So she was she was appointed in nineteen ninety eight to this position of secretary. Yeah. At the annual at the uh, AGM in nineteen ninety nine, she she had to explain that the funds weren't looking quite so hot. Okay, but that was only only because uh, the stocks and shares there'd been a bit of a uh, a ruffle in the stock market and the, bit of a dip. Yeah, yeah, they the definitely definitely recover. So yeah, that the I know you had eighty thousand, and I know now we have less than half of that. But that's just because the value of stocks has gone down. But they'll come back up. Don't you worry about it. Yeah. The next year in two thousand, however, they asked why um, the twenty seven thousand that had been with the bank in a savings account suddenly wasn't there she said that she'd invested it in various children's charities <laughs> okay she's like yeah I'll give give it to charity um she wasn't able to produce receipts for that or to name the charities that she'd given it to it's a risky game isn't it if you're going to steal something just do it like tenner here and tenner there well you? they had no money she'd stolen over a hundred thousand pounds jesus what was she the- doing with that money new cooker <laughs> get more than a cooker for that ah uh, well you did you need to see the cooker that she bought dear top god of range. top of the range it was beautiful this is my question though if someone's name is literally mcskimmy are you going to be putting them in charge of your finances <laughs> absolutely not it's like she she just lived up to her name <laughs> as far as i'm concerned but again because she was in her 70s she was 78 by the time she was caught the thing is, what are you going to do? Like, when you get to that age, 
I don't know. I'm going to do some crime when I'm old. If, if you make it to your 70s, that's that's the decade of crime mm, for you. It probably won't be 70s, though, will it? Well, I'll have to wait a little bit longer, I think. Or 80s. People are living longer, aren't they? No, that's stopped. Over the last, yeah, the steady rise in the age, uh, the life expectancy stopped. Something to do with, um, I don't know, austerity um, and, you know, hospital poverty. weights and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and poverty. Yeah. Yet the pension age is still planning to go up. So go figure. But yeah, um, she was only sentenced to 200 hours of community service. I mean, that's quite light, isn't it? Considering she didn't give any of the money back. That's over £100,000. I want to know what she spent it on. Holidays, I imagine. I imagine she was driving around in a nice car. I mean, you can't get that much for £100,000, but I'm I'm assuming those two years she lived it up. I mean, you can get quite a bit. And when you work it out... It's not a figure to be sniffed at. You know, like £100,000, 200 hours of community service. I mean, she was getting paid £500 an hour. I wish I got paid for Yeah, you know, the community service, it worked out as well. You'll have to work off your debt, so we'll give you a job that we're essentially saying pays £500 an hour. Skimmy. Hmm. And what are they going to ask a 78-year-old to do? She was hardly picking up litter or moving stuff, was she? I suppose it depends how frail you are. Uh, you know, it's the COPD due to the cigars she was smoking. Hmm. I'd quite like to do community service. Yeah? Make some friends. What? Are those the kind of friends you want? Those are the kind of friends I have. Uh, That's crime. why I'm friends with you. I've never committed... I've never been convicted of a crime. <laughs> You've just never been caught. I've been caught many times, but I can escape. I'm small. Like I a ninja. very thin wrists. Handcuffs you just, just slip right off. oil up every day just so you can run away from people. Catch him! Catch him! No! He's so slippery! No, as the police are coming at me, that's when I pull out the baby oil and I'm pouring it over my head. Oh, no. Like in a L'Oreal advert, just shaking your hair back. Like. He's greasing himself up. I don't want to go near him. Why is he getting naked? What's going on? Let's just leave it, lads. So moving on from somebody for our M, for McSkimmy, who robbed in a very literal sense, to um, our N, James Camden Neild, 1780 to 1852. Who was a lawyer, which is you know, a different kind of theft, really, isn't it? <laughs> now, Let's see what you did there. At the age of 34, James Neild inherited an estate worth £250,000. Uh, yes, please. A quarter of a million at the start of the 1800s is, is quite a bit of cash. It's a lot of money. It. Yeah. His father, who had amassed this fortune, had been a philanthropist... Uh, given to charity, very generous to his friends and to his family. Obviously, he paid for James's education, made sure he'd gone to the best schools, got this high-powered job. James was a bit different. He felt that he shouldn't have to spend any money if he could help it. Uh, and he probably is the definition of a miser. He would sleep on the floor because he didn't want to pay for a bed. Okay. He saved uh, money on his clothes by not having them cleaned he would just continue to wear dirty clothes oh, he, did, no, he didn't I... want to pay for a lawn laundry service i like fresh smelling garments he didn't want to worry about the upkeep for horses uh, or for um carriages so he walked everywhere from his home in chelsea to his buckinghamshire estate he would walk that 
rather than pay. And if you're thinking, well, that'll take many days. Yeah, Uh, yeah, but luckily he had lots of tenants who lived along the route. So he just rock up to their houses? Yes, to the small one-roomed cottages and demand to to be put up there. He would also demand that they fed him. Pain in the arse. So depending on, on how, where you lived, you might be just the person who happens to fall onto, you know, tea time on that route and you'd know yeah. that every couple of weeks you were going to have bloody James Neald knocking on your door going I own your house <laughs> I'm sleeping here tonight but, oh god not him again one of his responsibilities as a as a noble who'd inherited an estate uh, was to maintain the local church in North Marston in Berkshire when there was a need to renew the roof because it had been uh, starting to leak he instructed his workmen not to recover it in lead, because lead was expensive, but with strips of calico. I don't know what calico is. Neither do I, but I'm assuming it's an inferior um, material. Yeah. Uh, he tried to play it off as, well, you know, it'll last a lifetime, as opposed to lead, which is famously... Uh, Will last. N- ...never lasted. <laughs> uh, and not only did he want to use inferior materials, but he also didn't want his workmen trying to knock off early... So while they were installing uh, the new roof, he sat on the roof of a, a property next door to watch them, to make sure that they worked for the full 10 hours a day that he was paying them for. Oh, it seems A, boring, and B, uh, what we call a tight ass. Well, you say that, but do you know what he did manage to do? He managed to double his father's fortune that had been left to him to half a million pounds. I mean, it's impressive, but on what, like, you've got to live, do you know what I mean? Maybe he enjoyed living the miser's life, and it meant that there was a lot to put in his will. Yeah, yeah. You know, and maybe Did he this... have children and stuff? No, no, he was, a, he was a miser, and he didn't want to share his money with a woman. She'd want things. If he tried to share his life with a woman, she'd be like, well, you know what, I think we might I need a bed. To... yeah. I want somewhere to sleep. I need more than one dress. I bought you a dress a decade ago. (laughs) What do you mean you want more? But, you know, he's got half a million to spread around, so maybe this is the moment. To his long-suffering, you imagine, and underpaid housekeeper, Mrs Skillet, who'd looked after him for 26 years without complaint. Yeah. He left nothing. Hold on, was that woman before called Skillet? McSkimmy. Ah. This is Mrs. Skillet. Right. She got nothing. The entirety of the fortune was instead left to Queen Victoria herself. Shut up. Like she needed any more money. For her sole use and benefit. However, although Queen Victoria did accept the half a million, (laughs) she used it um, to put a new roof on the church because the calico that he'd used had rotted quite quickly <laughs> so he spent all of that time saving money only for it to be spent on this what the yeah. same thing that he refused to spend money on that's funny i really hope queen victoria also left a bit of money for mrs skillet i'm sure it didn't cost half a million pounds to bloody do that roof i mean i i don't know maybe we should go and look at the roof of the uh of the church in north marston in berkshire i remember getting told off by the police for being on a roof of a church Stealing and, the lead. Um, I wasn't stealing the lead. We were just up there on the on the Church of the Lord having cigarettes, you know. 
the cash. Was thing. it actually called the Church of the Lord? No, it was the. I don't even know what it was called. Um, uh, and we were on there, and all my mates had run away and climbed off, and um, I was the last, and I got in trouble. So. Ah, yeah. Well, you always need to have the sacrificial lamb who's slower than everybody else. Yeah. Mm. Sorry, dude. Yeah. And we're up to the O's. Oliver Green. Arthur Orton. 1834 That's... to 1898. That's not that long. How old was he then? 30, 40, 50? Yeah. No, he... Okay, fine. Yeah. He, wasn't, he wasn't that old. In 1866, Orton, who was at that point working as a butcher under the name of Castro in Wagga Wagga, which is in We're... Australia, okay, naturally, uh, contacted Lady Titchborn, claiming to be her long-lost son, Roger, who had supposedly drowned at sea in 1854. But alas, he is in Australia. Yes, I, it's, it's a proper... I, I survived, but I lost my memory, and I drifted all the way to Australia, where I was taken in, and my, my memory is now recovered, and mother, I want to come home, <laughs> because you have all of the money. Mummy? But she'd always known in her heart that her son was still alive. Oh, God. Okay. But she wasn't an idiot, so she asked a former servant of hers who was living in New South Wales in Australia, sent a, sent a message across and said, look, this gentleman's claiming to be Roger. Would you go and check? Let me know. Um, but the servant, the reason he'd gone over there is he'd retired and he was quite old. His name was Bogle. Um oh. And he couldn't really tell. Everything he was seeing was just sort of vague shapes, um, you know, and smudges and outlines. And Castro, Arthur Orton, he managed to convince Bogle that he was indeed Lady Titchborn's long-lost son. Okay. So she sent money across and said, Look, darling, we need to meet. It's been so long since I've seen you and I'd, I'd almost given you up for dead, so why don't you come and see me in Paris? So she sent money across, and Arthur dutifully got on the boat, came across to Europe, uh, and met Lady Titchborn in Paris. Okay. She was immediately convinced that he was the real deal. She was... She wanted it better. No, she wanted it. Yeah. The rest of her family were a little bit less convinced. Mm. For a few reasons. First of all, Roger had been a slim, athletic fellow. Yeah. Arthur Orton weighed 21 stone. Okay. Oh, your body can change, though. Roger had been sent to the best schools, knew yeah. Latin and French. Arthur couldn't speak a word of French, didn't even know what Latin was. But he, he explained this away, uh, Arthur, going, oh, yeah, yeah, I did used to know French, but then I got a very, very weird disease where part of my memory uh, got lost, and it just so happened to be the bit of the memory where the French was. So I can't do the French anymore, but otherwise... I'm fine. I am clearly uh, Roger. No, lies. So they challenged the insistence that he was Roger, and the legal proceedings, they ground on with Lady Titchborne going, I want to leave the money to Roger. And the rest of the family going, yes, but Roger is clearly not this man. Yeah. And this man is clearly not Roger. This is a weird Australian butcher. Can we just get a bit of perspective? Anyway, she died, uh, and it still hadn't been sorted out, so it was just Arthur versus the family. Okay. And it it went to court, 
Right. Weirdly, he was able to produce, during the court case, a hundred witnesses who had met Roger who swore blind that he was Roger. And it seemed like he was going to get the money until he... You know what you never do. If you're the con man or you're the criminal, you never go in the witness box. You never give testimony, do you? No, no. He was so confident he got in that witness box. And, you know, the... The jury deciding the case, the judge deciding the case, he couldn't remember his mother's maiden name. He couldn't remember the school that he'd supposedly gone to for many years. And also, and I think this should have really put the kibosh on it from the start, he didn't have any of Roger's tattoos. Oh, okay. Because well, apparently Roger, being a sailor as he was, had had, had many tattoos, tattoos. Yeah. His explanation when he was asked about the tattoos he no longer had uh, was that the sun in Australia is so harsh that it faded the tattoos clean away. I call BS. Unfortunately, what he did have were a number of other distinguishing marks. And some of the police officers who were hanging around the court, they decided to run these through a few systems, maybe contact the guys in Australia, see if there was anyone matching this description that, that they knew by a different name. Uh, and they got a message back going, oh yeah, we're looking for him. Uh, he's called Arthur. Okay. He's called Arthur Orton. And we're actually, we got a warrant out for his arrest for horse theft. <laughs> this was this was mentioned to the jury. And I imagine it's, uh, you know, they're about to give their verdict. It's like someone running in going, Your Honour, I have an emergency piece of late evidence to give you. And I handed it over. It's like, oh, this is highly irregular. It's like, ah, uh, it turns out we have proof that this is not Roger. <laughs> <laughs> so the claim was rejected in 1873. He was tried for perjury in England, sentenced to 14 years in prison, and he was at risk for a long time of then being um, extradited back to Australia to face so the horse stealing charges. As it was, he didn't end up being sent back to Australia, but he died penniless in London at the age of 64, still insisting that he was Sir Roger Charles Doherty Titchborne. Can you imagine if it was actually true, though? And you were, like, literally like, yeah, that is... This is true. Well, I guess it could have been um, the family, the family's doing. You know, like, well, if we get um, Boogle, the old servant, to pretend to be, um, you know, an Australian lawman and send over some stuff saying, we're looking for this man and just describe Orton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, He's a horse thief. But I, yeah. I don't think it needed to go that far. I think this was clearly an Australian chancer who'd read about this old spinster who was pining for a son and went, I can be that son. I mean, that's dedication, isn't Why it? Not? That's, that's one, seen it to the end. One one man's as good as another. Yeah. It, she, To be fair, she died happy. He did give her that. Mm. She died happy having found her long lost son. And isn't that beautiful in and of itself? No. No? No? No. Okay. Is that because of the fraud? Yeah. Oh, I'm just saying fraud can sometimes be... No? No. P, let's talk about a trier. Okay. Richard Pockridge, 1690 to 1759. Okay. Richard wasn't very good at most things. That's really sad. He was left a fortune in the early 1700s of £4,000. Okay, yeah, good amount. A year. A year? Okay, nice. And he managed to waste pretty much all of it. How old was he when he inherited it? 
Well, it was from it was from his father, so he would have been about twenty two, I believe. I was going to say, if I was quite young and I inherited money, I'm not entirely sure I would be that sensible. Yeah, but people with got older, was... younger in those days. You didn't have teenage years. You had your childhood till you were seven, and then it's like, right, we need to Work. groom you now. You need to yeah. start learning to run the estate. None of this going to Ibiza and Benidorm lark with the leads. No, but the problem was he he wanted he he felt that. You know, has he hadn't had to work for this money, he could just do whatever he wanted with it. He's going to have four grand coming to him every year, regardless of whether he succeeds or fails. So he may as well just try and live his dreams. Yeah. And the first dream he had, he'd seen where the Bishop of Dublin lived. And he yeah. loved the building. And he, he, he walked past that building regularly and he went, do you know what? That would make a banging tea room. I could make that into a proper good cafe. Think of the ambiance. You know the way Weatherspoons do now? Yeah, yeah, buying yeah. up really interesting buildings in the bishop's house. In the bishop's house, there was a little bit of a problem there in that the bishop refused to move. Okay. So he he walked up to the bishop of Dublin and started trying to throw money at him. And while four <clears throat> four thousand pounds is a lot of money, it's not so much of the money when you're the bishop of Dublin. You, you have access to funds, I believe, as the bishop of Dublin, yes, especially at that time. You'll have some dollar. But he he wouldn't take no for an answer, and he went back seven times to try and convince the bishop to sell him. Okay, the building, yeah. Even, even when he offered to sweeten the deal with some prime racing pigeons, the bish still said no. Was having none of it. Yeah, so he went, okay, tea rooms, that's not going to be my thing. I've wasted a lot of money on these pigeons and on the other things I've bought for bribes, but that's okay. My next, my next round of money's come through. What else could I do? And he went, do you know what? People like wine. So what I'll do is I will plant some vineyards. Where? In Dublin? Uh, well, in Ireland. Okay. He was going to make Irish wine. Okay. And he's like, do you know what? Is that a thing? No, no, it isn't. I mean, the, the climate's terrible for making wine. Especially if the land you buy, because you wanted to get a lot of land cheap, is bog. Oh, no. <laughs> so, yeah, he, he tried to, to plant a vineyard on a bog in Ireland and it went about as well as you could expect and he tried that for a couple of years and wasted more thousands of pounds buying more and more importing I'm assuming vines yeah yeah that's not cheap from France and Italy and wine producing countries planting them in a bog and watching (laughs) them die and hoping yeah they're too wet yeah all the time probably with some special wine you know maker who's paying a lot of money just going this is no (laughs) <laughs> just stop sure Richard just stop this is no it's like next year no no next year please <laughs> Richard either buy better land or stop trying to grow this just stop it so he gave up on that but he had a load of um, land uh, so he went well if I can't grow grapes and, and make wine I'll breed geese specific specific and it turns out that geese don't particularly like bog land either no, we get stuck when you're yeah. stuck in the mud. So you had a lot of dirty, dead geese, oh. uh, which was upsetting, I'm sure. Yeah. Just, you know, rotten vines and dead geese. And he's like, <laughs> why does nothing I want work? Welcome to Horrorland. But, you know, I mean, these are just setbacks. So he decided he needed a new scheme. Yeah. And his next scheme was to um, develop a process for achieving eternal life. Okay. And he was going to do this via blood transfusions being performed on animals. 
Right, okay. Until he got the right mix that he could um, infuse it into a human to provide them with the longevity. Okay, and this is early for that, date-wise, surely. Mm. So his, his basic idea was you take a young animal and you attach the blood to an old man and watch as a kind of the picture of Dorian Gray scenario happens where the, the animal starts getting older and the person magically gets younger. I love that book. And he was really, really... He he thought it through a bit too far. You know, yeah. he kind of jumped ahead because he started to talk to lawyers um, about the potential for when, you know, everyone could live forever of having people legally declared dead when they reached the age of 90, 999. Okay. Just so that inheritance still worked and so that money would still throw, flow through society. Yeah. It's like, well, you know, eternal life's great, but unfortunately we're not going to be keeping the gears of industry turning after a few generations of this. So we're going to have to come up with a method for the money to continue to be passed down. Because he'd really okay. thought it through. Yeah. It didn't work, would you believe? No, nope. wow. It was another one of his failures. Yes. But the lovely thing about this story is that eventually he got it right. And we have been here for 570 years. Yeah, well, it, it took him many, many years. Unfortunately, he wasn't going to live to 999, but in his later years, he did get one money-making scheme off the ground, and that was the invention of a musical instrument that he called the angelic organ. Okay. Which is essentially a load of glasses yeah. with different amounts of water that you would run your finger around to play a tune. I've seen people do that. Yeah. I might have even done it myself. I mean, I it had been mentioned in various texts over years, so it's not like he actually invented it. He more kind of rediscovered it. Oh, okay. Because um, it had been mentioned in the Karma Sutra, amongst other things. Oh, really? But he developed his own case for it and his own method of playing, and he was able <laughs> to get people to pay for him to do performances i love that okay well at least one of his hair burned schemes worked i know it's beautiful isn't it it, is. it it got there he did it magic in fact he he managed to get to the point where he played a new composition provided by mozart on okay. his angelic organ amazing which is and yeah i mean that is just superb unfortunately less than a year later um he died Oh, at least he died happy. I don't know that he died happy. He was burned to death in a fire at Hamlin's <gasps> Coffee House. Wow. Uh-huh. So he's, finally, he's like, finally, I'm a success. Nothing can stop me now. And burn. Lovely man. But it goes to show, you know, if you, if at first you don't succeed and you have never-ending resources. Bishops. Yeah, just keep keep going. Don't you ever stop. Don't on that stop. crazy train of yours. Believe in I hate that song with a passion. Hate it so much. We're on cue. Cue. And we're going to talk about another Glaswegian, Peter Queen. <gasps> cool. Oh, Peter. He'd met a woman that he loved. He was working as a bookmaker's assistant, and he'd met a nursemaid called Chrissy Hall. And they'd engaged in a romantic affair together. Oh, were they married? Or just... They were not married to anyone. Right, um, just... Okay. They were both unmarried, and they decided in the heat of the moment that they would move in together. 
Mm. And they took rooms in the house of a man called James Byrne. Okay. Things started off well, but uh, over time, Chrissy, bless her, she started to feel the weight, being a good Catholic girl, of living in sin with this gentleman. Yes. Oh, yes, of course. And she took to alleviating those feelings of guilt by drinking heavily. It's and, a theme here, isn't it? Mm, she wasn't a happy drunk as well. You know, some people get... Yay, I was very much, when I used to drink, I used to be a very loving drunk. No, she was more the, the introspective, um, depressed, suicidal. Arsehole, yeah. Yeah. To the point where uh, she would often, when Peter was about to go off to work in the bookmakers, um, sort of see him off with at the door, probably, you know, glass of gin in hand, by saying, you're going to come home one of these days and find me strung up. I bet he's like, thank fuck. He's like, oh, I love you too, dear. Um, <laughs> Have a good day. Yeah. But, you know, he, he worked and he was like, well, once we're no longer living in sin, once she feels that we're, you know, I've made an honest woman of her, so he saved up and worked his hardest. And in 1931, we're in the 1900s, Ooh. in 1931, he was able to buy a house for them. Okay. And he hoped that now that they had their own place and they were living a bit more of the straight life, yeah, yeah, that he could just save up for that engagement ring and she'd be able to put her demons to rest. Unfortunately, now that she had absolutely no supervision from, from the family who they were renting a room from, she started to drink even more. Uh... And by November, she'd had, she'd had too much of it. It'd become too much to the point where Queen came home from a long shift at the bookmakers to find that she had strung herself up as she'd always threatened to do with a bit of clothesline no, in the bedroom. She, she did it. She did it. Uh, I mean, I don't know how you react to these kinds of things. He reacted in what seems like a very normal way. And he ran to the local police station and said, please help. Uh, I think my wife's dead. Uh, and they came back and, and saw that she was indeed dead. So they did the, the hum, humane thing and they arrested him for murder. What? They were like, Oof. that's exactly what the murderer would do. They would immediately head to the police to tell them where the body was. Aha, it's the old double bluff, you see. That's what they were thinking. No. Yeah. What a brazen criminal this Peter Queen is. He's going to not only tell us where the body is he's going to lead us to it and he's going to allow us to examine it that's so bad and it was examined and not only was it examined it was examined by the two leading criminal pathologists of the day okay sir Sidney smith it's a great name and sir bernard spilsbury right and the thing about them was pathology especially criminal pathology uh, in the early 1900s it was an emerging science and these two guys were both, they were like the dueling experts. So they spent most of their careers trying to make the other one seem crap. So that they, could, <laughs> they could take all the credit. So they were constantly sort that. of discrediting each other's work, you know, casting doubt on, on others, the other's assertions. They, they, they were frenemies. I love it. And I, th- I think that's the best way of describing. And both of them were asked to examine the crime scene to examine the body and to 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 give the learned opinion on what might have gone on 
both of them said that it was clearly a suicide. There was no signs of struggle. She was clearly depressed. She had made many, many vocal, very, very loud threats that she was going to do exactly what had happened. Uh, And also, let's not forget, at the time she died, this man, Peter Queen, was working in a bookmaker's I'm assuming a sort of public-facing role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, So dozens of witnesses to say, no, he was here in this shop doing this job. Anyway, the jury found him guilty. What? Why? What is wrong with people? Uh, And he was sentenced to death. That's crazy. Yeah. Poor chap. Despite there being absolutely no evidence and the two experts that they'd asked, two experts who... Both said this was the only case that they agreed on when they'd both been consulted. This was the only time in their careers that they agreed on what had happened. They still found him guilty and sentenced him to death. That's wrong, man. It's wrong. Well, they never carried out the death sentence. Okay. It was commuted to life in prison. Well, well, still not any better, but fine. Yeah, and he died in prison, despite... Not having actually not murdering. killed someone, so he he was sentenced to life in prison for having a wife, a, a that depressed, was Ill, yeah. yeah, a depressed woman who he was planning to make his wife. His crime was not. I mean, maybe he should have bought the engagement ring first and got her married and made an honest woman of her, and then bought the house. So, timing is the worst you could accuse him of. I think. Mm, I don't know. This is rotten, man. Rotten. It is. But yes, it was. The only time Sydney and Spilsbury agreed, and it was thrown out by the jury completely. Maybe it's because they agreed. They were like, hmm. It's all too convenient. They're in cahoots. Yeah. Put them in the dock. <laughs> they did it too. This country's sick of experts. <laughs> Let's go back to the Civil War for our R. I would love to. Royalists. And James Robertson who was a soldier known as the Daft Highland Laird. Okay. Was he a bit silly? bit cheeky, a bit naughty? Uh, he, uh, well, he was a bit cheeky. I, I, th- I think he was a bit cheeky. So he was a supporter of the Stuarts. Yeah. And he fought enthusiastically, but with no great distinction, during the okay. Jacobite rebellions of 1745 to 1746. He was soon captured, but the authorities, they decided that he wasn't even worth holding because he'd been such a shit soldier. Um, and they just let him go. Like, you are completely You literally mean James. nothing to us. Goodbye. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm a really important fighter. No, you're not, James. You're, you forgot to take your sword out of the scabbard. That was I want one you of the issues. get gone, sir. But the problem was, James, he greatly enjoyed being prisoner. He'd enjoyed the camaraderie with his fellow soldiers who'd been locked up. He enjoyed the notoriety of being, you know, a royalist. And he... Not he part just, of the club. Yeah. yeah. When he was out, he was just James Robertson. He didn't, didn't enjoy being just James. So he decided he needed to get himself back into prison as soon as he could. Okay. He advertised himself as a rebel in public. He would go in and say, Hello! I am a Jacobite. I think we need to reinstate the monarchy. Here I am. And everyone yeah. just went, right? Okay. But do you want a, do you want a beer? This is a pub, sir. 
Do you want to arrest me? No. God damn it. <laughs> I want a beer and I want to drink in the King's Arms pub because I raised arms on behalf of the king. And exactly. I think we should do it again. Uh, when that didn't didn't work, he went out into the streets and he would say, come on, lads, we need to rebel against this Oliver Cromwell and his authoritarian regime. I'm going to start a rebellion. And again, the, the watchman, you know, Cromwell's new model army soldiers just kind of watched him yeah, and shook their heads. And like, shut up. We know what you're doing, James. Shut up, James. Stop it. Stop it, James. So you could see that wasn't going to work. And he's like, do you know, do you know who else gets, gets locked up? Criminals. Maybe what I need to do is a crime. So he decided, right, what I'll do is I'll refuse to pay rent and then I'll be locked up in a debtor's prison. But when I'm in there, I can say it's because, you know, I'm a rebellious uh, royalist. Yes. So he stopped paying his rent. Okay. Unfortunately, his friends found out about the fact that he got into arrears and they paid it for him. <laughs> That's nice of them, isn't it? He tried it again. And this time he managed to actually get into debtor's prison. But again, his friends paid for him to be bailed out. He refused to leave his cell. Okay. For a number of days. And eventually the jailers had to trick him. And they told him that they needed to escort him to the local court because he was going to be tried for high treason. Right, okay. And that he had to go to the courtroom now because special um, circuit of judges had been brought there to try him this very day. And he was, oh, yes, finally, I'm getting the recognition. I did fight in the Civil War, and I was a royalist, and I am dangerous, and I am important, damn it. So they marched him out the front of the jail and then quickly turned around, ran back in and shut the door. (laughs) (laughs) That's brilliant. Uh, And that that really broke his brain, I think, because from that point on, he he gave up trying to be arrested. He realised that even the prison system didn't want him uh, and he could be found on the streets of Edinburgh carving the heads of people who he felt had wronged him and had refused to arrest him in wood as a weird kind of voodoo practice. That's so bizarre. What a bizarre guy. I know. I'm quite into him, though. Yeah, I mean, it's... Aw, he just... It's one of those things, he just wanted to be... He just wanted to be important. Acknowledge that, yes, he had fought for the Royalists, and they're like, well, not really, you didn't do a good job. It's like, but I was. It mattered to me whether I was good or not. I... I stuck with it. Yeah. You know, I think it was pure insanity that he was spending his time walking into pubs and toasting the health of the king. Oh, yeah, because it could have ended very badly. Well, definitely. I mean, bravery or stupidity, either way, (laughs) the way they dealt with him was just fantastic. (laughs) I'll just get him gone. S. For sugar. For sugar. In this case, for snooty. Because mm. we're going to talk about Charles Seymour Somerset, 1662 oh, to 1748. Would you believe that the sixth Duke of Somerset, Charles Seymour, was an aristocrat? But, well, yes, I could, yes. And do you know what he didn't like? What did he not like? He didn't like the poor. <sighs> at all. The great unwashed. Yeah. You could say he had a phobia of anyone from a lower social class than him, which he took to the extreme okay 
he didn't live in London. No. He lived in Somerset. So he went to the expense of building houses at intervals along the main road between his house in Somerset and his lodgings in London so that he would never have to stay overnight in a public house or coaching inn where he might accidentally bump into the poor. I'm getting Jacob Rees-Mogg vibes. Oh, Jacob's a fake um, posh toff. It's all an affectation. He just doesn't. He just doesn't want to come across as the nouveau riche investment banker that he is. Mm. But not only did he have these houses, Charles Seymour, to make sure that he didn't have to you know, stay with the poor, rub shoulders with the working classes. He also made sure that he had outriders on horseback ahead of his procession to clear any poor people off the road. <laughs> what? What is wrong with people? Now, he did have servants, obviously, who you could claim were, you know, of a lower social standing than him. And that was a real worry because he didn't want to have to interact with them. So he developed his own form of sign language that would allow him to tell his servants what he wanted without having to actually look at them, acknowledge them, or, you know, the intimacy of an actual proper two-way communication. What's an absolute prick. Mm. But it it wasn't just the poor that he was better than. You know, it was his own family because he was the head of the household and everyone needed to crack down and fly right under his iron his iron rule. Yeah. For example, his daughter, Charlotte, she was tasked with watching over him whenever he had his afternoon nap. That was her job. She had to sit and just watch him to make sure that no harm befell him while he was having his afternoon nap on his sofa. Well, I mean, if he was like that, I would have given him harm. Well, one day, probably after, you know, years of this, she wandered off. She was just like, do you know what? He's asleep. He's a heavy sleeper. I can go and have an hour to myself. I'll come back. He won't be any the wiser. And unfortunately, on that day, he accidentally rolled off the sofa and fell on the floor. (sighs) He woke. He found himself on the floor. He was confused. He was angry. He looked at the chair. Charlotte wasn't there. That rhymed. He declared that from that moment on, she was dead to him. And if she was dead to him, she was dead to the entire household, to the family. And from that moment, no one was allowed to mention her name. That is insane. She was written out of the will. Because she fell off the sofa. Because he fell off the sofa while having his afternoon nap. And she hadn't been there to catch him. I am baffled. So yes, that is that is Charles Seymour Somerset. That's the posh man's posh man. That's potentially one of my favourites thus far. Yeah, just no. But your daughter? I have no daughter. What are you mm-hmm. talking about? She let me roll off that sofa once. Yes, I sustained a small bruise, and the rich are not allowed to bruise. It has to be someone's fault. Yeah, hundred percent. I don't even remember what I was researching to get this one. I'm intrigued. What for, are we on now? For tea. For T. Tetris. Todger, perchance, because we're going to talk a little bit about Henry Timbrell. Wonderful. A man of God. He was a Methodist preacher. Yeah. But he also had to make his daily bread, so he was a farmer on the side. Okay. And in 1764, he was tried in a Wiltshire court for castrating two of his apprentices. <gasps> what? 16-year-old Thomas Hay and Robert Brown, who was a sprightly eight years old why would you do that well 
he decided he needed some extra funds. Um, it had been a bit of a lean year on the farm. And he knew that castrated boys or castrati make quite good opera singers so or can cut, make quite good opera singers. So he cut figured, their bows off. Yeah, if he, if he castrated them, he could then sell them as opera singers. Yeah, but surely they've got to be able to sing in the first place. Have I just ruined your story? No, no, no. He'd Apparently, the thing was that he was, um, he'd was he been left with these two because he'd said that they were apprentices. Yeah. They were actually his bastard children because he had a sideline of um, basically selling babies. <gasps> baby farmer. Well, not in the same way as a baby farmer because he wasn't taking in unwanted babies and claiming money from the state. He was um, people who couldn't have children. He was providing them with children that he assured were of the finest Christian stock. Oh, yes. Uh, would be free of defects. But he was he was creating them himself and selling them on. And these were just two that he hadn't managed to sell. And he was like, well, now they're costing me money, uh, you know, and they're getting older and people are starting to notice that they really look like me. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. all getting a bit much. So if I can sell them off, it would be great. He had before um, tried to give them smallpox, uh, but that proved <laughs> unsuccessful as a way of getting rid of them. And he's like, well, if I can't get rid of them, I may as well just sell them for, for profit. This is abuse. The court at Salisbury sentenced Timbrell to two years in prison and fined him only 13 shillings fourpence for that's each assault. That's ridiculous, because that's just going to ruin their lives. Yeah, well, a lot of people, because as you can imagine, the, the trial was a bit of a sensation. <laughs> yes. Uh, there was quite a crowd, and the crowd also thought that the sentence was a bit too lenient. You know, just two years in prison and... For ruining these two boys' lives. So, basically, they, they attacked him. Oh, good. Yeah, he he was led from the court, and the angry people of Salisbury beat ten bells of, of shit out of Henry Timbrell, but did not kill him. Well. He served his two years, he paid his fine, and he lived to the ripe old age of 70, <laughs> having castrated two of his bastard children. That's just awful. Yeah. What an arsehole. Mm. Well, you got to make that money. I'll make that a dollar. Yeah. And you can get angry. You can get angry, but everyone's got to have a side hustle. <laughs> I'm sure cutting the balls off of children is not... A yeah, but they were his do. children. And it doesn't matter. Back then, children were just property. You... No, awful. If they'd have, if they'd have died of the smallpox, no, th- this wouldn't have ever happened. It was their own fault for surviving, I think. <laughs> How dare they? Oh, poor, poor people. Where where am I at now? You Wait. just did tea. I just did tea. So Q R S T. You. Yes. You. <laughs> what did you do? Sir Thomas Urquhart. Interesting name. Mm. Well, he was another one who was on the wrong side of the old royalist, okay. um, you know, debacle that was the Civil War. So he'd fought, but unlike James. Uh, he'd fought well, and he'd been knighted by Charles I. So he was he was quite a big get. However, uh, after the Battle of Worcester, he was captured and imprisoned by Oliver Cromwell. Okay. He was released, but all of his property was forfeit. Uh, and this, this really upset him, because he was used to the finer things of life. You know, he'd become a sir uh, in the court of Charles I, so he'd, he'd been debauching with the best of them. Mm. for a few years and then it had all been taken away uh, and he decided that he needed to make his family fortune back and that he yeah. would do so by becoming an author 
Okay. Unfortunately, he was also a narcissist. (laughs) So the book that he decided to write to restore his fortunes was a detailed genealogy of his own family, which he claimed he'd traced back through 143 generations to Adam himself, as in the first man. Okay. He managed to prove or he felt he proved that he was directly related to Methuselah, to Noah, right, to the Pharaoh's daughter who found Moses in the bulrushes. <laughs> We're all related to them. Yeah. And you know what? Nobody bought it. Okay. And he was he was shocked to find that nobody bought his I mean he would be if he loves himself. Bullshit genealogy. He was related to everyone. He was related to, you know, William the 1st. He was related to any famous person that you can name, Alfred the Great, he was related to, going all the way back, Hengist and Horsa, he was related to every person through British history, through world history, you know, through religious history. They all had come together to create the unique genius that was Sir Thomas Urquhart. And he <laughs> couldn't understand for the life of him why people didn't want to buy his family tree That's for so an extortionate fee so that he could start living in a country estate again. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. That's so funny. When that didn't work, he he sort of scratched his head and went, right, I need to write something that's a proper page-turner. Something that people will have to buy. I will rewrite the Bible. Uh, He was going to rewrite something. The English language. He decided (laughs) that he could come up with a better language for everybody to use. And he did create his own universal language, which... What was it called? I don't... I'm guessing Urquhartian, because it has to be about him. But he he claimed that it had exactly 64 advantages over any other language currently in existence. Okay, so how does that work? Um, I don't know. All I know is that one of them is that every word in the language has a meaning if you read it both forwards and backwards. Okay. Which means it's very useful. Uh, Isn't if... that called something? Um, you, oh, it this, is. No, I'm thinking of onomatopoeia. That sounds. That sound. It? it sounds like yeah. what it is. Yeah, like kapow. Mm. No, you're. Th- are you thinking of it, it? It reads the same forwards and backwards. Oh, I don't know what I'm thinking. But no, this this it it would be a different word, but both would have a significant meaning. Right. I don't know how that helps. Fine. I mean, I guess if you were really clever, you could write a sentence on a page. That would make sen- sense as a sentence one way, and then if you read it the other way, it would also make sense as a sentence that it way. Sounds hard work. To me. It sounds a lot of hard work, and we already have this great language, English, that can pretty much be whatever it wants to be because it's multiple languages Angleterre. smushed together. Angleterre. That didn't really work either, um, and he continued with these farcical things he wrote a book trying to expand the amount of um animal sounds <clears throat> that have yeah. uh, a written form in the english language yeah so for him buffaloes go boing yeah which i think yes i mean that I, makes sense i've always heard buffaloes boing um quails go kirking okay yeah he 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 basically claimed that every animal and every subspecies of an animal makes a unique sound, and that should be um, acknowledged. 
So a dog does not go woof. That's that's too generalised. Every dog will have its own call, and you should have a way of writing that down. Okay. That it will be recognised as that. Oh, you're talking about an English bulldog, <clears throat> which goes rarf, rather than the French bulldog, which goes rarf. <laughs> oh, that sounds like such hard work. Um, I think my laptop's overheating again. Can you hear it? Is that your laptop? I thought you were brewing a brew. We'll see if we can get to the end of... Um... Can you hear it, though? Is it really yeah, annoying? Yeah, Sir Thomas Urquhart, before we uh, blow it up. Okay. I love, what I did last time is just shut it down and start again, mm. and then it was fine. So, so we'll finish Sir Thomas Urquhart, whose who's genius has made your computer spontaneously combust. Mm. Because yes. none of his schemes, no matter how clever, made him any money, and eventually he had to retreat to the continent in order to... Um, <clears throat> Seek some support from the court in exile. Okay. And it is reported by his family that his death in 1660 was caused by an uncontrollable fit of laughter upon hearing of the restoration. I love that. <laughs> Can you imagine dying, la- dying laughing? <laughs> well, after all these get-rich-quick schemes, it's like, ah, and now I'll just be given all my things again. <laughs> I'll be restored to my titles. And he was so excited and so happy that he laughed so hard he died. To death. Like the weasels. That's so funny. The weasels, as in from... Who framed Roger Rabbit? I wasn't thinking of that. I was thinking of... They famously um... died laughing, didn't they? Did they? I can't remember. It's been ages since I've seen it. I was thinking of um, The Return to Oz. No, that's The Wheelers, not The Weasels. The Wheelers, yeah, they're quite yeah. creepy. Yeah, they are. Much more creepy than The Flying Monkeys, I feel. Hmm. Return to Oz was scarier than the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, I'd agree mm. with that. So for V, yeah. we have Martin Van Butchel, seventeen thirty-five to eighteen twelve. Amazing. He was a dentist, but not only a dentist; he was the dentist, the only dentist. He was able, in the late seventeen hundreds, to charge as much as eighty guineas. For a set of false teeth. And as you told me, each guinea is three pounds. Yes. So that's, what, 180 pounds. It's a lot, isn't it? No, it's more, isn't it? It's uh, 240 pounds. I'm just nodding and agreeing. He was, not... he was mm-hmm. charging yep. for a pair of dentures. But he was, he, was, he was so good at the teeth that it stopped being a challenge for him. And he turned his skills to other medically required um, items. Specifically... He very much liked to design trusses. What's a truss? It's a support, so it's something that you wear wear to hold parts of the body in. Okay. And other necessary supports. He was great at early physiotherapy equipment. Okay. And OT equipment. Not only were they for for medical reasons, but he began to be um, designing artistic, fashionable pieces. And it was in vogue at the time for people to wear, well, people, I say people, women, to wear Van Butchel garters. Ah, okay, yes. But the reason that he's known, the real reason that he's known to history, is because when his first wife died in January 1775, he embalmed her by injecting a special carmine dye that he developed into her blood vessels, Okay. replaced her eyes with glass eyes, and displayed her publicly in his front room in a glass-topped case... I mean, they should have done that to the Queen, shouldn't they? What, embalmed her and placed her in a glass-topped case? 
Yeah, like Snow White. Well, mm, yeah, but there was always the hope that Snow White would wake up, wasn't there? I mean, this is literally his dead wife that he's decided to... <laughs> in the living room. In the living room. He charged an entrance fee to see her and always referred to her as the perfect wife because... She um, didn't talk. Yeah, pretty much. He said it was complete domestic harmony. However, he did eventually marry again. And would you believe that his second wife, she didn't like uh, his coffee table setup. With his dead wife. With his dead wife in it. And demanded that, that the body be removed. Yeah. Where it was sent to the Royal College of Surgeons. Yeah. Uh, and kept in display right up until 1941. Oh, really? <laughs> when it was destroyed by the Nazis. During oh, a raid. so it was the Nazis. So it lasted, this body, from 1775 to 1941. Oh, God, let it rest. Good embalming, though. I mean, jeez. Very good, yeah. yeah if, it if it was still display-worthy. Very, very good. Martin very Van Butchel, he can make a truss, and he'll truss you up and leave you there for hundreds of years, looking just as beautiful as the day you perished. I love it. Good Do man. You want to hit- do you want to hear my dentist story? I do want to hear your dentist story. Right, so the uh, the dentist that I was registered with, uh, the receptionist, uh, got arrested and convicted of trying to poison the dentist and the dentist assistant with um, mercury. And um, this was recent. It was how did like, they try to get the mercury in? Uh, I don't know how. I don't know what the, what the details were. but um, It wasn't uh, mackerel, though. I think it was in their drinks. So like over, Surely but it was you taste that. But it was over a period of time, so it was like she was doing it over. Oh, like she a was going for of... Mad Hatter's disease. Yeah. So, she, but yeah, she got convicted and arrested and stuff, and that was my uh, dentist receptionist. Yeah, but, I mean, you go slowly insane that way, don't you? So, the terror if you were one of the dental patients of your dentist slowly losing a grip on reality. Yeah. Well, she got convicted. It was all on the BBC and everything. Good. Yeah. Um, I know. I love it. I'm actually reading uh, Crooked House by Agatha Christie at the moment as well. And there's there's always a poisoning in there as well. Oh, Agatha Christie loves a good poisoning. Oh, me too. Well, I do you know what I like about... about poisons because she worked in an apothecary during yeah. the, the Crimean the war. war. She did indeed. Yeah. The uh, What I like about Agatha Christie books is they're not too long because sometimes I get a bit bored if a book is too long. Like, she doesn't... She's she doesn't like description, and I don't like reading description. It, it irritates me, so I don't need to know in my mind the twenty different colours that are on the wall in the room that they've just gone into. Just oh, give me a, that's a Charles Dickens thing. Give and me now, dialogue, page long paragraphs describing the room. Yeah, no, give me Agatha Christie. Give me dialogue. I want to know what's going on. Fast paced. Boom, 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 boom. What you really want is a TV show. <laughs> May I suggest? ITV's adaption of Poirot. Mm, I do like Poirot. Mm, everyone do. likes Poirot. Yeah. He's Belgian. Mm. I'm not French. We're up to W. <sighs> and we have Francis. It should be double V, shouldn't it? I've always thought this. It should be double V, not okay, W. We're up to double V. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. Francis Waring. Waring. 1760 to 1833. And we're into another parish priest. We've had quite a few vicars and priests in this. Mm. It turns out there's something about um, the priestly life that you're, you're going to go eccentric in one way or another. Yeah. You know, sometimes it's a, it's a cute way. 
<laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's, it's, a, it's mischievous a way. way, yeah. And sometimes it's it's this. As vicar of Haybridge in Essex, Waring likes to get through... <laughs> what likes, like he's still doing it. Loves it. Waring liked to get through a service as quickly as possible. He'd set up a small clock on a ledge so that he could time himself as he sped through the lessons, delivered a quick-fire sermon consisting of just two lines and a proverb, ran down the aisle, jumped onto his waiting horse and galloped off to repeat the performance at two neighbouring churches because he had three on his patch. And he was like, (laughs) I'm still finishing within the hour. I don't care. Yeah, fine. All the way around. He was noted too, because as well as being fast, he was flashy and he would make hats for himself, each more fancy than the last that he would wear while doing these quick fire sermons and services. (laughs) Now it's my green hat and my red hat and my feathered hat. On one occasion, he went to a big church doodah and he was he was admonished and dressed down by the bishop for wearing purple. Because uh, obviously, if you if you're with the rest of the the um, the religious folk, it's only a certain level and above who are allowed to wear purple, and it's only at certain times, I think. So, the bishop is like, "What the fuck is that pimp hat you're wearing? For the love of God, Francis, you look like an absolute tit." Isn't purple your favourite colour? It is my favourite colour. But even I would wear it at important ecclesiastical events. The show logo is purple. Yes, it's pretty much. (laughs) I wish there was something more to it than that. It's also, you know, the colour of um, royalty and nobility. Mm. Because at one point, because you are regal, you couldn't afford purple unless you had lots of money because it it costs so much to produce. That's that's not true now, though. Any fucker can get it, even me. (laughs) But yes, the bishop had a go at him. And rather than try and defend himself, he handed the bishop a card that he'd had made for just such an occasion. On the card was written, How good of you to notice. Do let me recommend you my tailor. Which that's apparently, funny. That's uh, that's a dress down, isn't it? Anybody who commented on his hats, he would hand out one of these cards. That's so funny. Brilliant. He was an eccentric in his dress. He was an eccentric in the way he delivered his sermons. And of course, like all good eccentrics, he took it home. Because although he wasn't poor, I mean, he was running three churches, so he was getting treble church money. Yeah. He furnished his vicarage with logs rather than chairs. Okay. So you had to pull up a log if you wanted to have a chat with him. He had his children feeding from a trough for ease of clean-up, I assume. What the fuck? And... He had his wife sleep in a wicker cradle that he suspended from the ceiling. In case of wolves, I assume. If nah, wolves were to break into the house, his wife would right. be safe. He's not right, man. He's not right. Nah. I mean, he's holding down three jobs. He looks fabulous. He has a family. So did that dude from bloody... In Germany that kept all them people in his basement for years and years and years. Whatever his name. Fritz. Fritzel. Fritz. Something. I don't know. Um, yeah, but he had a family like Joseph Fritzel. Yeah, is that his name? yeah, yeah. He 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 didn't so much have a, have a family as he demanded to keep a family. Yeah, you live here now. I've, I've I created you. You are my property. Mm, yeah, I mm, no, not right. If there's a locked door in a house, oh, ask questions. <laughs> you know what I mean? Not in that room. You just go. Oh, why? Don't ask questions, like, Timothy. Yeah, I will be ringing the police now. I'm just going to ring the police because no, no one should have that room in their house no. <laughs> with five padlocks on it. 
What's wrong with you? He says buying a house or a basement. It has a basement. What? I, I'm not going to use it to keep. You're going to subdivide the room and it, like, like there'll be a secret bit and everyone think it's like the retaining wall, but you're like, there's a secret room behind that wall, that stud wall that you put in. Oh yeah. The, the most unbelievable bit of this is that I would have the DIY knowledge and wherewithal to put in a stud wall that wasn't obvious as you walked in. I'm quite good at DIY. I'll do it for you. No, I don't. <laughs> I don't need a secret room. I've got my office, or I'll have my office. Hopefully, my gothis, as, as can, we're calling I can, it. I can. I concur. It's going to have gargoyles. Oh, I love it. Internal, so they're not going to have piping. You should get um, gargoyles. Um made of like your whole family so it's actually your faces as gargoyles i mean sounds good but i think it would be expensive mm, you can just chisel your own or get the kids to I make can just one. chisel my own get the kids to make them paper mache i'd love I, it i'm not um, papier mache with my kids is i mean although you'll probably body. make make your poor daughter cry like you did in the last episode i didn't make her cry the concept of death made her cry it made me sad, Joe. That she got upset. Yeah, I'm sorry. She's got over it now. We've 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 agreed that someone well, uses the term unalived. I'm traumatized by by my child's <laughs> trauma. Yeah. Um, I cry all the time when I come off of these episodes. Just well, I say the same thing that I say to Evie: grow a pair. This is the <laughs> real world. You'd have to use unalive for me as well. Yeah, okay. Let's talk about someone who unalived a lot of people to finish because, like I've said, X I couldn't find. Okay. And Z I couldn't find. We'll probably have to do a little bonus in some time in, in the future. Yeah, just Where we just in. do X and Z. Yeah. So to finish, we're going to finish with a Y. And we're going to finish with Graham Young, a compulsive poisoner. Yes. Who, at the age of 15 was committed to an institution for the criminally insane after confessing to the poisoning of his stepmother and the attempted poisoning of his father, his sister and a school friend. He was treated for nine years and then was released, having made what was described as an extremely full recovery. That is foreshadowing. Okay. Age 23, he took a job making photographic equipment in Hertfordshire, at Bovingdon, if you know it. No, I don't. Where is that? That must be a part of Hertfordshire I'm not familiar with. Anyway, in 1971, a mystery illness began to affect the workforce at the photographic equipment factory in Bovingdon, Hertfordshire. Okay. Several people working quite closely with Young Young uh, began to suffer a mystery illness. Um, It was stomach pains, vomiting, diarrhoea. You know, the kind of things you could just pass off as one of those bugs going round. Yeah. But on the 19th of November, 1971, Frederick Briggs, a 60-year-old manager, died in hospital. David Tilson, Jethro Batt were also admitted to hospital. What? David Tilson's hair began to fall out while he was in the hospital. Uh, No one had forgotten that five months earlier, Robert Eagle, the firm's chief storeman, had died in St Albans Hospital from what had been certified as pneumonia. So there'd been two deaths at the factory in the space of five months, a mystery illness going round, and all of this had started just after a a guy who'd been released from a mental institution for poisoning had started working with them. Hmm, I wonder what could happen. Well, the management, I think they did quite well here because they 
organised a medical investigation. Okay. Which isn't the kind of thing you normally have to do if you're running a photographic sort of factory. No, making no. Uh, photographic equipment. So. I know where it is now. It's in Hemel Hempstead because I just looked it up. Is it? Okay, yeah. well, it's John Hadland Limited. Okay. I don't know if they still exist. Fine. So Kodak used to be a big thing in Hemel Hempstead. Obviously, that's way before then, but it's it's photographic stuff. So well, they may have there's bought a out. They may have bought out this thing, mightn't they? Yeah, yeah. So they arranged a meeting in the canteen, at which a doctor confirmed that the chemicals used in the company were not to blame. Okay. At so this point, who was well. At this point, a new young trainee storeman called Graham Young. Asked the doctor if he thought the symptoms of the mysterious illness were consistent with thallium poisoning. Okay. Which is an odd thing for a, a random new new trainee to come in and go, oh, well, doctor, I mean, having seen the same symptoms that you've seen, do you think thallium may be the mystery chemical that is causing such distress to my colleagues? <laughs> yeah, um, the, the doctor was suspicious of yeah, this guy being were, yeah. quite clear about what he thought it was uh, and the police were called in they exhumed the remains of Bob Eagle Robert Eagle the guy who died five months previous yeah uh, they analyzed uh, bits of him yeah and they analyzed bits of Fred Briggs the other guy who died and it turned out they had both received large doses of thallium which mm. probably caused their deaths yes mm. well that's yeah you put two and two together. Yep. Why would you say it, though? Why would you say? Well, I think it's it's that I want to be. I want it to be recognised that this was a an impressive crime, yeah. and he was sat there and he was worrying that, oh my god, they're not going to work out. They're going to go. It's just one of those things. He he wanted the credit. I think that he come up with an interesting way to poison Surely, people. If you want to murder someone, you want to get away with it. That's the whole. Thing, isn't I, it? I don't think he did want to get get away with it. I think he just wanted to poison people. <laughs> Fine, okay. And to have credit for it because he was arrested. They checked his background. Uh, yeah, he was gone. Yeah. Well, well, they arrested him, found thallium about his person, and then checked into his background and went, "Oh, yeah. you have form for poisoning people." Amazingly, after all of that, he pled not guilty, <laughs> even after his diary had been found, which contained the entry. A fatal dose of the special compound to F. <laughs> Why would you write that down? You've got, to, you've got to keep notes of your hobbies, haven't you? And his hobby's poisoning. Mm. Jung tried to claim that such entries were notes for a novel he was writing. Okay, fine. He's obviously got cold feet at this point. Mm. Former colleagues testified that he always insisted that he was the one who made the tea, but that it often tasted rather bitter. So he wasn't a good tea maker. I don't like people making me tea. Mm. Unless it's herbal tea and you can just leave the tea bag in. Um, And I drink coffee black now, so it's not really an issue. But when I was a milk drinker, then yeah. In July 1972, I mean, that's that's the way to keep yourself uh, alive, isn't it? To never accept a drink from anyone unless you're the one who hands them your tea bag and goes, put, you watch them, put that in. When I was at your house, you just kept giving me beer. Yeah, yeah. Your, your wife was like, can you just stop? That's a like, different kind of poisoning. That's... You've not even asked him. <laughs> just have another beer. Have one! Al- alcoholics need company. Yeah. And it's social drinking. <laughs> Yay! I still count this as social drinking. I'm six cans deep. In June 
1972, Young was convicted of murder, attempted murder, and administering poisons, which apparently is a crime all of its own. Okay. I did not know that. He was sentenced to life imprisonment and died of a heart attack in Pankhurst in July 1990. Oh, okay, so... So we've gone full circle. We've yeah. gone back to back to nineties. Back to the nineties when we were but babes in arms, toddlers toddling around, about yep. to start school, being fabulous. <laughs> well, you speak for yourself. I was being grubby. Okay, fine. Probably still wetting myself. Definitely wetting the bed. Fine. Yeah, I would. I would say in the nineties. Yeah. Yeah. 1990, what? definitely. To 99. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, it's going to be a new millennium. I really have to get on top of this. To I can't have the rubber sheets anymore. I'm going to start wanting to bring girls back. I, do, I mean, I must have done it, but I don't recall wetting the bed. I don't recall it being a thing. Mm. Uh, I must have done. Yeah, every kid does. Unless I was a child genius. <laughs> I was dry. Dry from the age of <laughs> six months. And now my... And now I'm dry again. I'm just a husk. (laughs) (laughs) So there you go. That was a quick A to Z of eccentrics that I don't have enough information on to do a full episode. Well, do you know what? I For an eleventy first extravaganza. Because I'm moving house and I didn't have enough time to write a proper episode. Because it gave myself and the listeners variety. I mean, I'm into that. We're all about variety. But don't worry, once we've moved in, once my gothis is set up, I will be back to the regularly scheduled one subject a week. So Joe has been threatening to not do an episode with me, not publicly, um, for a while now, and he just can't bring himself to do it. (laughs) Well, (laughs) we'll see, because this is probably going to be two parts. This will probably be the end of the second part. It may be that the internet is not back in time, so we may have a one, two, or three-week hiatus, depending on our internet service provider. So a temporary get my office set up. A temporary rest in peace to consistently eccentric. I mean, I say that there's there's every chance that I will rush something else out because <laughs> I. De- you definitely will. Yeah, I guarantee. Even if it's just me screaming into my phone. <laughs> Here's and some crazy release. person. Go. Um, I love it. Well, this is it. This is the last time I will record in this particular setup. Please. Forever. This is the last time we'll ever speak again. Goodbye. 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 Good day. <laughs> it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric, here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify, and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.